Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all, it's Tori. Before we dig in, I have a quick request. We're eager to know more about our audience, so we created a short listener survey to help us learn more about you. Visit wondermedianetwork.com slash survey to share your thoughts and be entered to win some Wonder Media Network swag. That's wondermedianetwork.com slash survey. You can also find the link in the episode notes. Hi there. Before we dive into our episode, I want to tell you about a unique podcast, Encyclopedia Womanica. It's a daily show from Wonder Media Network that tells the stories of groundbreaking women from throughout history that we may not know, but let me tell you, we definitely should. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, saints, scientists, social justice warriors, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. The bite-sized episodes pack carefully researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. But you know the best part? The show is just five minutes long every single weekday. I play it every morning while I'm trying to decide if I should go to the gym or not. You should really take a listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, welcome to this week's episode of For Future Reference. I'm Tori Taylor. And I'm Ambar Calvillo Rivera. This podcast is all about creating a space to have real, candid conversations about the role that people play in our lives, especially the ones who lift us up in professional and personal ways and how they make up the support structure in our lives. It's advice and food for thought that you can use now or just keep around for future reference. And this week, we are talking about all the things they did not teach us in school. So much of our day-to-day depends on how we manage our time, organize our to-do lists, prioritize, and set ourselves up for success. But there was never a class in school where we were taught all those things. So how do we learn about being successful in the ways that nobody taught us? Absolutely. You know, I've been thinking about some of the most critical areas in my life that I had to discover and hone in on in a phase that I'm going to call my adulting phase Mm -hmm. um, that really Mm -hmm. actually played into my leadership development. And the first one that comes to mind that I've been thinking a lot more about is this myth of hyper productivity as Mm. a means to success. So when I started off my career, I would really just consume all of the blogs and books and memoirs on people that were visibly successful. So CEOs, executives, um, entrepreneurs, people that had visibly made it in a way. And every time they talked about their day and how they got 
through their life to be successful. They talked about everything that they packed into their day in order to make it possible. And so uh, I started fantasizing about one day waking up at (laughs) five in the morning and having my coffee and I would listen to the birds chirp and I would read the newspaper and, and then I'd work out and I'd send a couple of emails and then I'd get into work. And so this is what I thought one day, Amber, this will be how you are going to get on that road to be a successful person and a leader. But here's the thing. That's not me. It's not true of me. I'm never going to be an early riser. I That fantasy has yet to be fulfilled. And I think the one time I did it, I was probably grumpy all day. And so for me, it's been really important to redefine this and actually not fall into this trap of necessarily believing that I have to be super productive all day in order to be successful. Uh, So for example, one thing that I learned as I got older and I don't feel guilty anymore about doing is taking a freaking nap. And to me, that is productive because being able to take a little bit, a little nap in the day um, when I know I'm going to have a really long day or I'm going to have events in the evening allows me to be more productive, more alert, more aware and creative. And for folks that need a little data to support their decisions, in 2014, uh, Dr. Sarah Mednick uh, had research that showed that actually uh, a nap, which is defined as daytime sleeping that lasts between 15 (laughs) to maybe, you know, maybe 60 minutes, can actually improve brain functions ranging from memory to focus and creativity. So again, to me, this is something that's actually been really important. It took me a while to accept that this is my reality and what I need to be successful and a better leader. um, And I didn't have to feel guilty about. And again, it's not something that you're going to find in a course or that people often talk about and and what it you know some of the skills that you'll need to to be successful or quote unquote successful I love that. You know, as someone who is not a natural morning person, I also consumed all of those blogs and those books on uh, the traits of a successful person and how they all woke up at 5 a.m. and did yoga and then ate half a grapefruit for breakfast. And I'm just sitting over here like, oh, my God, like I can't see colors before 9 a.m. Like, how am I going (laughs) to do yoga? How am I going to know which one is the grapefruit if I can't see the color? So thank you for affirming that, Ambar. (laughs) And we talk about this a little bit today in our interviews, but I think an important note of all this too is the higher you move up in your career, your success isn't judged necessarily by the amount of tasks you get done or how hyper-productive you are on a daily basis. Your success is actually judged by the quality of the decisions you make Mm. and we know that good decision-making means that you need high brain functions and you need clarity and you need mindfulness and you need decompression time. There's a lot of research behind that. And so, you know, it's really important to figure out how you're, you know, creating room for yourself to have the most mental clarity and the most space to really make the best decisions and be the best you that you can be. Yeah, because at the end of the day, and you know, we'll get uh, a little bit more on this uh, in today's episode from our interviews, but these are things that need that we need to set ourselves up to be successful. And so that looks different for different people. And what success looks like for you is different than what it means for me. And I think that's sort of the the last thing that I really think about as something that I wish I had learned earlier is that 
we have to define what success looks like based on uh, what we value and not what society or others on your social uh, social media feed define as success. At the end of the day, you have to live with your decisions and behind all of the life updates, uh, you have to feel good about where you're headed. And so um, these other things that prop you up and make sure to sustain you, uh, those have to be informed by what you define as being successful for yourself. And we could sit here all day and truly talk about a million other things that we wish we could have learned, but we also wanted to bring in a few others into this conversation today who have really defined what success looks like for them, accomplished really incredible things throughout their careers, have had a lot of really important leadership roles um, and leadership roles in situations that weren't always easy and weren't always certain, um, but were able to push through and be successful in really important ways. So first on our list is Amy Dacey, who we're so excited to talk to. She is currently the director of the Sign Institute of Politics at American University and has held executive leadership roles at several major national political organizations, including Emily's List and the Democratic National Committee, where she served as CEO. Amy is an ACE manager, leader, and a go-to mentor for so many women. And I really like our conversation with Amy today because we're digging into a lot of the things that, you know, they didn't teach us in school, but we really focus on with Amy, you know, we dig into her perspective of being a manager and a leader. And for those of us listening who are either in management or leadership roles right now or aspire to be in them, I think she really gives a lot of good golden nuggets on things that we should consider and kind of incorporate into our own leadership practices. And it was just a very fulfilling conversation for me. Good morning. Good morning, Tori Taylor. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So for our listeners, so Amy and I have known each other for seven years now. I was um, one of the first jobs that I had in Washington, D.C. when I moved up here from North Carolina. I started Emily's List, which is an organization that helps elect women uh, to public office. And Amy was the executive director. Um, So I was lucky enough to work for her so long ago and have been, you know, a fan from afar since we've both moved on to different roles. And she's done some really incredible things that I'm excited to share with you guys today. And so first, like, Amy, tell us a little bit about what you currently do and, you know, how you got there. Um, I just started a new job this summer. Um, I am the executive director of the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at the American University, which for me is a lot like going home because I went to grad school there. So it's oh, it's been great. But it's a brand new program, university-wide initiative that really takes a 360-degree view of the policymaking process. And so for me, it was, um, you know, finding that next thing that can influence and help define the process that I care so deeply about. And in a way, I think that's really going to have impact. And I'm excited about it. That's exciting. And, you know, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what your career trajectory had looked like before this role. You know, what are what's the path that led you to this point? Well, it's funny, Tori, you've probably heard me say this before, but I always say that I, I, when I was eight years old, my dad ran for school board and he told me that all kids um, – went to Democratic Party meetings and stuffed envelopes <laughs> on the weekend and, and, like, knocked on doors. So I didn't know any better. You know, I just thought that, that that's what they did. And, um, you know, I found out later on, uh, not too much later on, that that's not the case. But, you know, <laughs> him and my mom had just such a sense of public service and involvement in politics and using your voice that 
it had a lasting impression. And I'm happy to say he won that election, which is really cool. I mean, when your dad's, you know, on the school board, your house gets first called when they cancel school for snow. So it was like immediate popularity. It was awesome. Like, but I also learned a lot about public policy. But, you know, since then, it was just always a part of my life. And Mm -hmm. so what you see is I, I go to, you know, undergrad and then suddenly I'm, you know, going out on a congressional campaign. I worked on campaigns my whole life, but there was a series of congressional campaigns. I worked on the Hill for Congresswoman Louise Slaughter. And then I I have to say, I, I it was like I went and did the acronym soup. You know, I was at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. Um, but one of the... Um, One of my favorite jobs was when I went to work for um, Secretary John Kerry on his 2004 presidential election. I think that had a big impact on me. And then I was his national political director after that. And that's what led me to the labor movement at SEIU. Onto Emily's List, where we got to meet um, and get to know each other. A lot of incredible people worked there when I was there. And then from there, I was the CEO of the DNC uh, during the 2016 cycle, Worked on the private sector for a public relations firm. And then I was a um, actually a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics before I went and found this incredible opportunity at SIGN that I'm really grateful for. So, you know, this podcast is, is really about creating space for, um, you know, discussions about modern day mentorship and support structures. And, you know, today we're going to be digging into, you know, your experience and kind of your takeaways on you know things that you wish you would have known when you were just starting your career and uh, that you know now after having so many really high profile leadership roles and executive roles but first you know I want to ask a question about about mentorship and um, you know what what role mentorship and you know similar support structures have played throughout your life yeah a huge role I mean and, and again they started when I was young you know my parents you know for a lot of us are our first mentors especially if it's an interest that that we go on to pursue. But, you know, for me, I've had so many different mentors in my life. And, and I think the big thing that, you know, we have to get across is there's mentors of people who are more established and had a longer career. And so there are people that we look up to to get guidance and advice. There's peer-to-peer mentorship. Like, I think sometimes we don't consider that, but your colleagues who are going through the same thing, you know, in your point in that career. And then, you know, I have to say the thing I've learned most recently is there can be some mentorship, reverse mentorship almost with some of the young people I've been spending time with because they help you give the context of, you know, what they grew up in, what they're learning, what the challenges are for them. So I I think you can learn in a lot of different ways. I'm very grateful for my leadership mentors who are those people – you know, like the John Kerry's or the Anna Burgers or um, Congresswoman Louise Slaughter, or Karen Johansson. My thing is I've had them, so many of them over the course of my career that I'm very grateful. And I never would have gotten those jobs. I never would have, you know, been able to go to the next level unless they supported in some way um, and were so approachable about that. And, you know, now that you have had a series of, of really incredible leadership roles and in these executive positions that no doubt a lot of your mentors, you know, help shape your pathway to, to finding those roles and, um, you know, shape the trajectory to get there. You know, what are some things that looking back, you know, when you were starting your career, when you were in mid-level roles, 
that you wish you would have known earlier in your career as you were in those executive roles? You know, I think so many conversations around professional development and leadership development, I feel, can sometimes be couched in it in the phrase like what they didn't teach you in school. <laughs> you know, there's so many dynamics and nuances about, you know, the leadership and management that it's hard to learn from a book. And so are there takeaways that you've had over the last several years that you know, you wish you would have been taught in school or you wish someone would have told you, you know, yeah, early I think, on. I think the big thing is that, you know, especially when you have campaign or political jobs, you know, you, you usually are like thrust into this new role. And it's such a time condensed situation that there's not a lot of management development or you just got to get the job done. You got to get it done in like 18 to 24 months. And there's a certain date. And, you know, you mm-hmm. you do that. I think one of the best early pieces of advice I got was you had to know and understand how to manage money and how to manage people. Mm -hmm. And I think we're not always taught that early on, but no matter what job you had and if you wanted to move up and do different jobs, that was two things that you really needed to know. So whether it was when you were younger and you looked for the opportunity to manage the interns or you volunteered to, you know, help figure out and have somebody walk through the budget with you and help maintain that, those are skills that when you become a manager and if you want to lead a large organization – you have to have those skills. And it's not something that's always book taught us, you know, through through college, you know, depending on the course load we do. And it's not something that all the time is easy on the job training. A hundred percent. You know, you gave a, a pretty tangible example there about asking to manage interns. Are there other, you know, tips or things that you think young women who want to learn those skills but might not have immediate access to them in their current role what are some things that they could ask for or think about in terms of their next steps to make sure that's something that's a little bit more baked into their role? Well, I always remember when I went to the Service Employees International Union and I worked for Anna Berger, they had um, a program to help local labor leaders with management coaching and training. And I just asked for it. I said, well, you know, I'm newly managing your government relations. And, mm. you know, for me, it was one of the biggest staffs that I had ever had. It was one of the bigger, you know, kind of um, – jobs that was much more, you know, managing one department. And so I asked for it. And that's where, you know, I got an incredible management coach who helped me, you know, learn a lot and was a good go-to as well because I think sometimes the the thing you have to be careful about with a mentor asking on the job is like you don't want to just also surround yourself with people who are going to tell you what you want to hear or like mm-hmm. say you are absolutely, you know, you want somebody who will kind of push you to say like, well, why did you do it this way? Or, you know, is there a better path to do it? So I asked for management assistance. I think there's a lot of access to just being self-taught and like trying to go and find, you know, some things, either if there are books on management coaching or if there's, you know, um, podcasts or, you know, other kinds of learning. I think to be proactive and seek those things out or is also a really good thing. Um, for anybody who's trying to to kind of move along in their career. In the in the reverse vein, are there lessons that you felt like you learned when you were younger that as you got into these leadership roles that you realized just didn't check out at the end or advice that you were given um, that you just came to think very differently upon once you're in an, another type of role? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, the one thing is that I think when I was young, people so there were some people who were like you have to think about every step and every rung in the ladder and what's your next move. And you know what you learn as you get older is not 
my path was not, it's not a straight path. Like mm. it went in a lot of different directions. There was opportunities that I didn't get that I was devastated. And then the next day I got something that I didn't even know, you know, was something I wanted. So I think that, you know, I try to, you know, when, I, when I'm mentoring somebody, remind them that, you know, they can't just wrap themselves up in anxiety over, you know, everything. And they have to take a risk sometimes. And some of the things I learned were things that didn't work out you know, as well, like there's, you know, an organization I went to work for and, and that's not wasn't the right fit for me or, you know, um, you start a project, but then the funding didn't, you know, come through. So you have to move on. But you don't regret those things. I think you look back and see what did I learn from each one of those, you know, phases. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes we get too caught up in the process. And, you know, my dad once said to me, he said, don't be so concerned with your next job that you don't do the job you have. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important, mm-hmm. you know, because I think if you were all the time thinking about what's your next job or what's your next move, just do the job you have and do it really well. And people will notice, you know, I mean, I still think you have to build those relationships and have mentors. But, you know, don't forget to do the job you have. It's really important. What are there any particular best practices or or grounding advice that you have utilized in the past to, to not get wrapped up in that anxiety and to make sure that, you're approaching the next step or the next decision with clarity versus getting wrapped up in the noise that surrounds so many of us in in different careers. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a difference. One of the big lessons I've learned as I got older is there's a difference between working hard and working smart. You know, mm-hmm. you can still be work hard, but work smart. And I think, you know, for me, um, when you are young, you're always trying to prove yourself and want to make sure that people know that you're a hard worker and what your skill sets are. But I think that the other thing is that you have to be able to say that you don't know something mm-hmm. or you need help with something. I think that's the other thing because when we don't do those things, that's when we get anxious. That's when we can trip up. That's when we overextend ourselves and then we're just not happy people, you know. Right, and right. and I think, you know, for me, I remember when I worked for John Kerry, you know, if I didn't know the answer, I'd always say, sir, I don't know, but I'll let you know in five minutes. And I think he respected that because I never gave him anything that I hadn't checked or whatever. But I think – we're worried about being vulnerable and mm-hmm. saying we don't know how to do something or we don't, you know. And every time we take a job, I, you know, even if you look at the job description, you don't know how to do that 100 percent. You've never done that job before. Right. Yeah. So there's going to be those moments. So that's a big thing is to ask for help. And as a manager, I've always said, I can't fix what I don't know. So mm-hmm. if you're not going to come to me with a problem when we can't talk it through or work it out together, it's just going to become a bigger problem. And, you know, these things are like with any part of our life, our personal or how we interact with our family or, you know, they can get bigger and bigger because we make them bigger and bigger. We don't, you know, take a minute to do that. You know, and I think the other thing is you have to think through some of these jobs that we take on. It feels like you're constantly in crisis mode because Mm -hmm. that's just the nature of the work. I think you have to step back and say, well, What's the reality of this situation and how can I, you know, work on this and what can I do and what can I do? And it it goes back a little bit to what you said about, you know, this is this is it's not always a direct ladder. You know, some of this is a little bit of a jungle gym. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about building your own narrative and building that own pathway and not, you know, confining yourself to rigid expectations of other people or things that you Google. And so do you have any advice for 
folks that are listening who are trying to think, you know, what is the A to B to C pathway in terms of their career, but maybe need some help kind of breaking it up and being a little bit more flexible and nimble about what they what that career trajectory could look like for them. Yeah, I think sometimes we do get really caught up in titles. I think sometimes when you're too wrapped up in that, you won't look at an opportunity, you know, the same way because you're like, well, I can't do that. I've already done that or I can't do, you know, but each position is unique. Um, So, you know, for me, one of the things I really, you know, um, wanted to, to say is like, what skills do I not have that I might want to build on? I think we look at things like, this is my path. I have to do, you know, this. I have to, you know, go here. But sometimes we don't ask the question for the next job. Is there some skill that I want to learn? Is there mm-hmm. something that, you know, I found or something in my last job that I found that I enjoyed more than I thought and I would want to find the next job that I want to spend more time with that? So I think that's a big piece of it. I think sometimes we also admire and respect people that have certain roles. In reality, we might not know what their role is. You know, mm-hmm. I always tell people I'm mentoring, like, go, if you, if you, think person X has an amazing career, mm-hmm. well, go f- get their like job description for what they do or look at their career path and see if that's what you want. You know, um, if you're CEO of a nonprofit, it's like, do you know what that really means? Mm-hmm. And, you know, go and talk to that person and say, what, you know, what is, if you were going to write your job description today, mm-hmm. what does it look like? Amazing. Well, looking forward to the great things you're going to do at American University. Thank you, Tori. I appreciate it. Hey, y'all. It's Tori. I travel a lot for work and I'm usually running to catch a flight, sitting for a few hours on a plane, and then running straight to meetings after I land. So having pants that look nice and are comfortable during hours of travel is a dream come true. The dress pant yoga pants at Beta Brand are exactly that. They feature super comfy styles designed to look professional, and not only do they feel good and look great, but they're also super functional. Like they have a style with eight yes, eight pockets. So I don't have to worry about where I put my travel snack, my phone, and my wallet. I generally leave my pocketbook in my suitcase and still have everything I need on me thanks to this amazing design. That's why I started wearing Beta Brands dress pant yoga pants in black. Now, for future listeners can get theirs for 20% off. Visit betabrand.com slash FFR, all lowercase, to get 20% off yours. Our second guest today is Congresswoman Veronica Escobar. She's my representative as she represents Texas' uh, 16th Congressional District. And she made history as the first woman elected to this seat and the first of two Latinas from Texas to serve in Congress. And she's had an incredible career in life here in El Paso, Texas, where I was born and raised. Uh, She went from serving as a county commissioner and then a county judge to really just being an incredible ally to a lot of groups and supporter of many causes and local organizations. And we chatted through some of the ways that she had to be fearless, how she learned to be brave, and some of the things that she did that people often, again, don't kind of talk about or teach you on how she's continued to lean on that uh, in her career. Well, Congresswoman Escobar, we are so lucky to have you on our show. Thank you so much for being with us, taking the time. We know you're extremely busy. My pleasure. Thank you for including me. You've had a a long career in public service, and you held a lot of leadership positions before you got here. 
What are some positions or experiences that you had before coming to Congress that you think really helped set you up for success in the role that you are in now? When I first ran for local office, I ran for county commissioner. And I ran on a cleaning up government platform because many of us who were watching local government, the county in particular, believed there was corruption. When I got elected, sure enough, I I became absolutely certain that there was corruption. I either was going to be silent and just try to get the work done that a public official gets done and try to promote projects and issues important to me, or I was going to fight with my colleagues and with some of the internal structure of the organization and the people fighting to keep the status quo. And I had to make that decision because I couldn't do both. And I had a lot of very well-meaning people who told me, you really should be going along to get along. You're not going to get anything done. And the more of an antagonist that I became, because I literally was outing my colleagues and, mm-hmm. and saying, you're rigging this bid. You, you know, you're hiring a crony. You, the, I mean, I literally was outing them in public meetings and challenging them in a way that was very uncomfortable for everyone, including me. And... Five months after I was sworn in, my colleagues' offices were raided by the FBI. There were a number of guilty pleas. Um, and, you know, I felt like I, I absolutely made the right decision. And, and the most important part of that decision was being able to look at myself at the end of every day. And I think that that beginning to public life and to political life has served me well because I I'm not fearful of losing an election because I think if I lose an election, then that then my time is up and I need to move on and I can't be afraid of decisions that need to be made and I can't be afraid of things that need to be said. You know, even, even as you were talking about some of your previous positions, uh, a word that kept coming to mind was courage. You know, even starting some of those early positions in public life, how did you learn to be so brave? I I had a great mentor, and his name is Raymond Caballero, and he was a mayor of El Paso 2001 through 2003. And, you know, I I think I I already kind of knew, um, I had a strong moral compass about, um, you know, about community that I learned from my family and from my mom in particular. My mom was always volunteering, always working, always trying to help others. It, she's very selfless. And so I, she was she was a model for me. And then when I worked for Ray, when he was mayor, 2001, 2003, that guy was fearless, absolutely fearless, and confronted issues head on, made his staff very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and and we all kind of were afraid that he would not get reelected, and sure enough, he didn't. But I learned af- after his loss, and I was really despondent and very sad after he lost his race, um, but after he lost, I remember thinking, would I have ever wanted him to do anything differently? And while, yes, like there were some things I wanted him to do differently, I did not want him to not be courageous. And I thought, you know, the, the, when you're given that level of public trust, 
over the public good, that is your one job. And, and so it's, it's keeping that in mind at the forefront that, that I think helps. Yeah. What else do you think has prepared you to serve in this position? Are there, and I guess like the point I'm, I want to arrive at is we often sometimes focus too much on like, okay, making the perfect to-do list and, you know, making sure you have the best time management routines. And yes, those are important. And there are ways I think that we can recalibrate to make sure that we're um, setting up our our day uh, on a good path. But so much of what it takes to be successful and not drive yourself to the ground isn't just about time management or what's on a to-do list. And so um, what else have you learned along the way or that you think really set you up um, to, to, to serve in this position? Not being afraid to fail is important. And we, I think as women especially, we are very concerned about not making errors, about not making mistakes, about being perfect. Um, everything from our appearance to how we talk to people to what happens on the job to planning our future. There's a lot of pressure on women to succeed and, and to be correct and right every step of the way. Um, I, I have told my kids and I share this with young people all the time. Some of your most significant periods of growth will happen when you make mistakes and when you fall flat on your face and when you, um, do or say something that, you know, you wish you could change, but you learn from it and you grow from it. And there's too much fear for women and too much fear in us. And we, we can't be, we, ha- and we have to embrace who we are and say, you know what? I think I can be in Congress. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. And, uh, I may not look like everybody else or sound like everybody else or be like everybody else, but I'm, I'm going to do it and, and just be fearless. Mm. You know, we have a lot of, uh, listeners who I'm sure struggle with the fear issue that we've talked about and who want to be fearless, who want to be brave, who want to figure out where that courage is. But I think we all struggle to find it in different situations um, on a day-to-day basis. And it's also one of those things that's a little bit harder to learn from a book. You know, it's, it's something they don't necessarily teach you in, you know, a civics class or a history class in, in school. So, for folks who are listening who want to tap into, you know, being fearless and finding that courage, um, but might not have, you know, the resources or the life experiences that help you gain that, what are some tactics or some advice that you might have for some of those folks? Always have a plan. I'm, I'm very, you know, even though I try to, um, uh, suffocate the fear that I have because we all have it, right? And and as much as I try to ignore or put aside or put it in a box or or suffocate it momentarily, I have the fear as well. So it doesn't go away. When when I was going to run for Congress, for example, I knew that I'd have to quit my job because because of a, a state statute that if you are a county official and you announce for another position then you effectively have resigned your seat. And I had two kids in college, a mortgage 
two car payments, you know, just the, the same responsibilities that every family has. And I knew I would be without a job for a year and a half. So without an income for a year and a half. And like many American families, I don't have a savings account that would allow for that. And so I had to come up with a plan. You know, before I made the decision, I had to think through how is this going to impact my family? What can I do with my budget? What what can we sacrifice? You know, no more cable, no more eating out, no more. But how much will that save? Well, that's still not enough. So what do I have to do? Um, and I sat down and I talked to people uh, in the financial world, asked for advice. What would you do? Should I cash out my retirement? Should I? And everybody said, no, 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 don't do that. You know, should I take out a second mortgage? What should I do? And so I had a plan. And so that helped that jump into the unknown feel a little bit better because I had a little bit of a of a safety vest on. And so th- I, I want folks who feel fearful about a jump that they are about to make. The fear is rational. It's rational, right? It's the, it's the fight or flight deal. It's It's real and it's rational. If you have a plan and you create a plan for yourself, you know, I, I, I thought about that, for example, when I entered politics and I thought, well, I, I may not ever get reelected to this position again. And I thought, you know, I, I have a plan for that. I will go back to teaching. I will do X, Y, and Z, whatever it is um, that, that, you know, that I had planned for, but I, it made me feel better. So you need a safety net and then you can take that leap. We're really thankful for you and, and that you have that support network too. And um, as we heal, I think, as a city and as a country. Um, so thank you so much for everything and for sharing your, your advice thank and you. wisdom with us today. Uh, those interviews, again, just uh, have really given me the fuel I need to tackle everything I have coming up um, this week. And really just both Amy and Uh, Congresswoman Escobar are such powerhouses and it was again such a privilege to have them on the show and spend some time with them. Uh, Tori, what are some of the things you're sitting with after today's interviews? Where to start? You know, a couple things that Amy said really struck me. First, how she as a manager can't fix what she doesn't know. And it made me think so clearly about all the times that I have been nervous or anxious to bring up problems or challenges that I was having or admit something to a boss or a colleague about not knowing something. And I I loved how simply put Amy put it about how she as a manager, she as a mentor, she can't fix it if she doesn't know about it. And it just goes to show you how important it is to be communicative about what we need and the support we need, whether at work, at home, um, in our, in whatever facet of your life that that pops up in. Mm-hmm. I, I do like that a lot. Uh, something that stuck out with me or I'm just really going to sit with is uh, the congresswoman said that at the, at the end of the day, when she was talking about these um, difficult decisions that she had to make, she said at the end of the day, she wanted to be able to look at herself at the end of every day and, and be good with that. And to mm. me, I think that's like essentially is serving as a, you know, it was a signal of her moral compass um, as she had to be fearless and making really tough decisions that were not popular 
uh, but were in the best interest of the community that she serves. And to me, that was such a powerful reminder of finding out what that is for for you, for for everyone, so that when we do have to make really uh, difficult decisions that are based on what is right and less on what others might think of us, um, is so important. You know, what's what's your north star? What is what is mm. going to make you mm-hmm. at the end of every day feel right and good about what you did and be able to look at yourself in the mirror. And so I thought that was really powerful. Uh, So tell us what would be helpful for you to hear on one of our upcoming shows. Give us your feedback on today's show. Email us at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. And we can't wait to hear from you. Yes, we'd absolutely love to hear from you um and speaking of our upcoming episodes next week we're actually going to be digging into what happens after networking and after you have now a collection of really great introductions to people uh, how do you stay in touch how do you become good connectors for others how do we use our networks not only for ourselves but to lift other people up and so the two uh, folks and guests that we have for this episode are going to share so much um, around this. And they're actually just really brilliant um, on keeping their connections alive and helping other people. Mm, I can't wait. Thank you for listening today. And make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are so inclined, we would love to see you rate the show and write a review. And maybe if you're lucky, we'll share your review on Twitter. (laughs) We hope today has helped either for now or for future reference. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.